0: Hello and welcome to the Footprint 40, a podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name's Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry, in company with a special guest. For our latest podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Professor Chris Elliott, one of the world's leading authorities on food safety, integrity and fraud. The Footprint 40 is kindly sponsored by Coca-Cola Europe Pacific Partners. Chris, welcome to The Footprint 40. It's great to have you with us. To start off, and for those listeners who might not be quite so familiar with your work, perhaps you can Tell us briefly about your career and your specific areas of expertise.
1: Thanks for the invitation to do this with with you, Nick, and and David as well. I'm always happy to chat to you guys and uh, give you a bit of a challenge when I possibly can. So, I mean, I guess my career has been very much about um, measurement. I I love to measure things, okay, generally in a laboratory using different types of of scientific tools. And the measurement has always been about issues, about food safety, issues about food fraud, and and, and more recently, actually, a lot of work in terms of of trying to measure the the impact of climate change and and what climate change is having on on food safety as well. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I would first describe myself as an analytical chemist. Secondly, as uh, somebody who is a kind of a food scientist. And then thirdly, of course, the, 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 the title I love more than
0: anything else is the food detective. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that um, reputation uh, for detection, I guess, for a mainstream audience was probably um, solidified back in 2013, 2014, when you were asked to lead the government's review into the horsemeat scandal, which first erupted. Ten years ago last month. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's been a decade since that incident. Um, And actually, that's when Chris and I first met, wasn't it? I was a policy advisor at DEFRA and was seconded onto the Secretariat to support Chris's review. and, And we spent a fascinating year touring the country. Uh, staying in some pretty ordinary hotels, (laughs) truth be told, and uh, (laughs) peering behind the facade of the food industry. What are your memories from that period, Chris, and particularly around how ministers and food industry bosses responded to the presence of of horse meat in beef products?
1: Yeah, it is is remarkable that 10 years has Nick, since uh, we, we had a really intensive year, really investigating, not just about horse meat, but really trying to get a better understanding of the complexities of the UK food supply system, the complexities of food policy across the UK government and all of them, the multitude of departments and all of those meetings that we had. And I, you know, my, my take home from all of those meetings were so many people trying to do absolutely the right thing. And that's not just in the food industry, but in government as well. And I think the second thing was the, the amount of isolation that there was between the different government departments. The, the amount of mistrust, distrust, the, the amount of antagonism that there was between the food industry and government at, at that time, because everybody was looking for the person to blame, and you know it was passing around Whitehall faster than a speeding bullet, and and you know um, I I think you know. Um, Many things have been said about Owen Patterson, you know, in, in in the past couple of years, but he was the single person I thought actually was willing to take responsibility and say, "Do you know what? We we, we have to do this." And my very first meeting with him, which surprisingly was actually in Dublin, not not in London, and he basically said, I, I really want you to do this independently. Tell me the bad news, and then tell me how we're going to fix things." And I guess. Pretty much, that's what we concentrated our efforts on for the next twelve months. It sounds like a
2: fascinating time, Chris. And putting to one side the fact that you and Nick should definitely do a Netflix series, um, maybe visiting all this again ten years on. Um, just looking, look, ju- just looking, sort of bringing it forward into the present day, and you know, there's there's a lot of criticism of such independent reviews and, you know, them taking place. And then the recommendations being ignored by government, you know, you think Henry Dimbleby's review, for instance, um, how do you feel about the recommendations, the key recommendations you made at that time? Did you feel listened to? And, you know, what are the ones that that, that you felt the government did listen to you and, what, what are some of the things that maybe we still haven't got right?
1: Yes, and I think those are all really good points that, that you make, David. Generally, you know, when, when people call for these types of independent reviews, it is, you know, in the eye of the storm. when when lots of difficult questions are being asked about different people and often it's seen as a ploy as actually a government ploy to say well we couldn't possibly comment on that because there's an independent review going on with the hope that the independent review will take quite a long period of time and and actually when the report comes in, everybody will have pretty much forgotten what the problem was in the first place but I have to say that I think in terms of um, the horsemeat scandal I think public interest did not wane. It, it, it certainly didn't. And, you know, we, we published an interim report after about six months. And, I mean, I was taken aback by, by the amount of media interest in that. I don't know if you remember, Nick, but it was just moving from one TV studio to another and then to the radio studios. And, and, and you know, the, the, I think the what had been instilled in people's minds right across the UK, but actually right across Europe was, "Craigie, we don't know where our food comes from. We don't know how it's being made. And, and we had never realized that people would, were, were cheating in the food system. So there was that shock, and, and that shock pretty much lasted right across the period of the review. So the... the um, Trying to park it by government certainly, if that was their tactic, which I, I certainly don't believe it was Owen, Owen Patterson's, but certainly that if that was what they set out to do, it, it failed miserably because that interest was still there. And you know, even in the drafting stages of, of the um, the review, that myself and, and you know, and, you know, have to you know, I don't want to make him shy, but Nick was a wonderful contributor to it as well. That there was a team of us putting this this uh, stuff together. And and some of the stuff written in the report made government and actually the food industry feel pretty uncomfortable. (laughs) You know, it wasn't just to say, everything's okay, Uh, something happened, but it's all being dealt with now, let's not worry about it. Uh, And one of the things that I remember being told by a very, very good SPAD in DEFRA was, warning Chris, generally very good reports get buried (laughs) And, and because very good reports really look at, at the big issues there, uh, and they won't try to, to try to shy away from them. So that was the the warning that I was given. And of course, there was all sorts of changes happening in government. Owen Patterson got sacked. Uh, Liz Truss then became the uh, the the, the Defra minister at that time. And, and what was clear, she didn't have any ownership of, of, of the report either. So it, it was another, um, I think, uh, problem that I, that I foresaw. What I, what I did not expect was really quite soon after the report was published, the government accepted the report in full. Now, that is incredibly unusual And, you know, you you talked about the Dimbleby report and, you know, we could have a wonderful discussion about that. There's lots of good stuff in in, in Dimbleby's report, some stuff that I was less comfortable with. I think there was a few gaps in it as well. But um, I think what has happened with his report, it really has been buried, to be honest with you. You know, virtually nothing has happened and, and, and nothing is likely to happen. And, you know, if you want to talk about the really important outcomes and, and the things that we concentrated on. Number one was to say, this is not going to go away. <laughs> this, this is a serious problem and it involves criminal activity that is not really currently being policed. That's a tough message. And the second message was, this isn't just a responsibility of government. Actually, it's a big responsibility for the food industry. And if you go back to European law, the food law, it's a responsibility of food business operators to to, to make sure that the food, that everybody gets safe. And, you know, if there's cheating involved, you cannot guarantee the safety of that either. And I think, you know, the three big things that I think that we got out of the, the review was, the formation of the National Food Crime Unit, and and we we can talk more about that, Mm. the formation of the Food Industry Intelligence Network, and again, something that's, I think, worthy of discussion. And the third thing was the formation of the Food Authenticity Network fan, which is really bringing a lot of different researchers, academics, um, um, government agencies who who have got expertise in, in, in food authenticity together. And it's now unbelievable that network i mean it's no longer a uk network it is truly global i mean there's thousands of of members of that network so i mean it's a i cannot say that government or industry ignored any of 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 the big ticket items that we put in the report which again is really quite unusual
0: well let's start with the industry perhaps and chris you mentioned the food industry intelligence network as being an important outcome from the review and Ten years later, that's still flourishing. More members join pretty much on a, on a quarterly basis. Um, and certainly at the start, I know the likes of Breaks and Compass Group in our sector, the food service sector, were founder members. Um, and, and slowly but surely, that network also built trust with regulators, didn't it? So there's now a two-way flow of information On supply chain risks. Um, How important has that been, do you feel?
1: Yes, I think, you know, FIN has been an outstanding success. And as you say, Nick, there's 60 plus members. Every month, there's more companies wanting to join. And it's not just UK based companies now. I mean, again, it's become global. You know, we have multinational companies want to join FIN because they can't find anything like it anywhere else in the world. And it is about the sharing of data, it's about the sharing of intelligence, but doing it in a way that does not jeopardise the reputation of any single member. And, and you know, there was complex uh, uh, measures put in, put in place around that. And I think to get industry to share really sensitive information w- was was w- was a coup. And, you know, in the report, it's something that, that we wrote about, but actually to deliver on it, it, it was the food industry that stood up and, and basically said, yes, we, we will do this. I think the, let's call it the conflicts that there were between industry and government about sharing information, it, it was pretty difficult around the time of, of, of horse Horsegate. Uh, virtually no information was being shared at all. And now we've got to the position where there is mechanisms in in place where the government, the Food Standards Agency, the National Food Crime Unit, has access to all of the FIN data, not only in in, in GB, but the uh, FSS in Scotland, the the Food Crime Unit there, exactly the same thing, Uh, and also the Irish Food Safety Authority so there is a wonderful way mechanisms now of sharing really sensitive information industry to government but also government to industry and there has been a number of occasions where it has been the industry has alerted the government and, and vice versa about something serious that's been going on. So it's a, it's an extremely strong, very
0: robust model and has stood you know the
1: test of time and, and, and quite a number of challenges.
0: And just to explain to to people unfamiliar with Finn how it works, so essentially businesses will um, consolidate data on testing for example ingredient product testing that will then become anonymized and it will a report will be generated um, which is then shared with the regulator um to to preserve um you know business confidentiality and then you know vice versa And, and in terms of the regulator chris obviously the the formation of the national food crime unit one of your main recommendations one of your most controversial recommendations as well as I recall, wasn't it? Why was that, did you feel at the time, a sensitive subject?
1: Yes, I, I think it was by far and away the most controversial of all of the recommendations. And, and Nick, I, I think you will remember well in some of the meetings that we had with government agencies, a myriad of different um, police forces as well. And, you know, it, let, let's say there was not overwhelming support for, for, for what we had recommended. I think the first thing was that we were basically saying this is criminal activity and, and, and there is not the, the know-how, the wherewithal to actually investigate it properly. Police forces are very, very good at, at investigating crime. But again, Nick, I don't know if you will recall, we, we sent a questionnaire out to the 43 different police forces around the UK and basically saying, how important is food? And, and I think only half of them replied and the half that did reply said, actually, food is not one of the key words on our database. We can't give you any, any information. And then, again, from the perspective of, let's say, DEFRA and the Food Standards Agency, you know, we were basically telling them that what they were doing was not fit for purpose. Tough, tough messages. They knew no food production, the food industry very well, but what they do not understand is the criminality of it. And our recommendation is we need expertise in the food industry. We need expertise in dealing with serious organized crime. And, and and that was the recommendation. Uncomfortable to government because it would have meant that it would have been the first new law enforcement agency to be established in the UK for 25 years. It's not something that they would do very lightly. And again, I think what we did was, this was, I think, a negotiation to say that I think and, and we think that the authors of the report thinks it was necessary to do it. And the government kept saying, Yes, but you have no evidence to show there is organized crime and, 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 and you know. So it's a circular argument. And the, the compromise was establish the National Food Crime Unit for a period of time to gather the information, the intelligence. And that's exactly what happened. A small group of people and then Lo and behold, guess what? The, the the information that they gathered went, yeah, there, there's quite a lot of organised crime out there, and, and you know we, we, we're in a difficult position, particularly around Brexit. There, there was a realisation that Brexit was going to to create more opportunity than. Oh, was that correct or not? You know, so phase two was really ramping up the the national food crime unit, and you know I think it sits at about eighty plus. Um, you know. Uh, full-time staff it is the largest as, as far as i can understand it's the largest food crime agency in the world now
2: and has that has the unit you know is it all you expected it to be i'm did you have a vision chris of uh, of what it might look like in maybe five or ten years time and has that has that vision come true
1: yeah crikey david that's an extremely good question because i think in in many ways i was quite naive about what would happen And, you know, there would be a tip-off and then, you know, a couple of people in trench coats would go and, and, you know, knock down a few doors and stuff like that. That's really not not how (laughs) criminal investigations work. You know, they gather a lot of information, a lot of intelligence, and they put together their their mm-hmm. dossiers, and that, that has to go through a number of gates in terms of, is there enough information there? Is it serious enough? Because they have finite resources, and that was really the, the part of the process that I wasn't familiar with. And I have to say, I got quite frustrated going, you know, well, well why are you not investigating this, this and this? And, and I would always come back to say, we do not have the resource to investigate everything and we are prioritising things based on the, the risk to the public and also the, the level of, of criminal activity. And you know, you know, I think the National Food Crime Unit has now cut a huge number of ongoing investigations. I, I can't say what the, what the actual number is, but I would be surprised if it's not fifty plus different investigations going in. Nationally, but also internationally, because you know, f- food crime doesn't stop at borders. You know, I mean, it, it, it is generally people, bad actors, working on a number of different countries and jurisdictions. So there's that whole network of investigations that will happen. You know, from from the source of food materials right through
0: the supply chains until it reaches the UK borders. Yes, and there was a recent review of the National Food Crime Unit published just before Christmas. Um, which Chris I'm sure you've seen but I mean, among many positive um, findings it, it did conclude that the unit is still hamstrung by not having access to specific aspects of key leg- policing legislation so the Proceeds of Crime Act, Police and Criminal Evidence Act um, and I know the Food Standards Agency has been pushing for those, um, you know, uh, for, for, those, for, for access to those powers for some time now. So, it will be interesting to see if ministers give way eventually on that. Um, l- let's move on to talk about the risk of fraud in the context of what's happening in the world today. I, when I wrote about this recently, I described it as a cocktail of risks facing UK businesses. You've got High levels of commodity price inflation, the Ukraine war, Brexit, cuts to local authority enforcement budgets um, that have in many ways created an ideal set of conditions for fraudsters to exploit. Should we be worried, Chris, about another horsemeat type scandal erupting? Yeah, so the, the, the cocktail that you talk about is absolutely
1: correct Nick but you're missing one really important factor as well and that's the climate crisis <laughs> and you know because crop failures are happening every day of the week in some part of the world, I mean we, we track them and, you know, that is, again, a, a wonderful opportunity because of, of the, the, the uh, problems about supply and demand, about particular ingredients or commodities. So put, put that into the mix as well. So we've got these, you know, big, big, uh, big-ticket items that, that are going on at the moment. And the UK isn't alone. I mean, this, the, the, these are global phenomena. And, 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 you know, I pick up more and more cases of really serious food fraud right across the world. And, you know, it's killing people. You know, it's not trivial. Uh, Lots of reports right across Europe as well. So it's not just happens in in the developing world it's the developed world as well and and, and wherever you know uh, one of my kind of expressions is wherever we look for fraud, we always find it. There are no commodities there's no ingredients that are that are free from fraud so with a very u k lens on yes we 've got all of these global factors. Plus, we've got the added dimension of Brexit, and, and I think the, the massive cuts that you talked about in terms of of the ability to check, inspect, take samples, and, 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 and follow up. So, your big question is could there be another horse gate? And, and, and I've been asked this a lot over the last few months with, with the 10-year anniversary. And it's, it, it's not my role to you know, cause uh, people to worry or concern, but we're just at a, a position now where there are a multitude of different vulnerabilities, particularly in different supply chains. And what I like to do is I divide really where we get our food from into three big chunks. The first is through the big players, the multiple retailers, okay? And they have got, because of Finn, really, really good systems in place. Now, if I was a fraudster, I was a criminal. I promise you I'm not. But if I was, I would not try to sell them any dodgy stuff. (laughs) Your likelihood of detection is pretty high at the moment, and that's a big positive. If I was this, this criminal where I would put all of my efforts into are the small stores, ethnic stores, the cash and carries into food service, as you talked about. Not in, again, not into the big players, Nick, not because they're part of Finn. But, you know, who's, who, who is supplying to lots of cafes, restaurants, pubs? Um, that's where the big vulnerabilities lie at the moment. And it's not, it's not the business model of people who cheat to hurt people because you know if, if somebody gets ill if somebody gets died then that that brings about investigations But often they don't have the knowledge or or really the care and attention of how they're adulterating food to say that that isn't going to happen. And there's plenty of examples in history where people have got very seriously ill or died because of, of consuming adulterated food. So we do, you know, if you want to talk about it, you know, we're probably on a level three, level four risk now out of five of something happening untoward in the not too distant future.
2: And it seems, Chris, from what you're saying, that food service is particularly vulnerable um, when we're talking about those levels of risk, especially the, you know, the, the, given its fragmented nature and the number of small businesses that are involved in food service.
1: Yes. And again, you know, right through the last 10 years, I've met and talked with a lot of people from food service. And they all set out to do the best possible job that they can, supply safe, wholesome, authentic food. So, you know, the the issue is not, we're saying is there's lots of bad actors there. The big issue is that there is a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of controls there. Uh, Generally, sourcing is very, very different in food service compared to the multiple retailers as well. Multiple retailers know and track their supply chains. They have huge amounts of, of checks, inspections, audits, particularly unannounced audits. Very, very few food service companies have got the the resource to do that and certainly not the technical resource within their companies to really understand where their big vulnerabilities lie.
0: Yes, that's a really interesting point about resource, Chris, because if you think of the size of technical teams within a large multinational supermarket chain or even a national supermarket chain. You know, talking quite a considerable number of people. It's just not the same in food service, is it? Even for those larger companies, the bigger brands. Um, And we've also seen within the retail sector a real concerted shift towards having direct producer relationships i think in the last 10 years as well um that again uh, there's been a little bit of that i think in food service but not nearly to the same degree and there's still quite a large reliance on on wholesalers and traders not that they're necessarily you know there's a lot of good wholesalers and a lot of good honest traders but um you add complexity. As, as you add more steps to the supply chain, you add complexity, don't you? Um, and that potentially creates uh, greater opportunities for fraudsters.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you're you're absolutely right about the size of, of, of the technical know-how and skills and, and, and numbers within the big players. And, you know, again, there's a lot of pressure to reduce the technical, you know, uh, costs of businesses as well. And, you know, a lot of, you know, People will contact me to say we think you know we're going to you know our, our the size of our, our our team is going to be reduced by X percent, so which is absolutely the wrong thing it, it, you know in just in terms of protecting customers, but when you get to food service and when I look at it you know there is. Maybe one person in the company who is responsible for trying to uh, look at what's called VASIP and TASIP, and again, for those who are who are not really familiar with that, that's looking at all of the vulnerabilities and threats to your business in, in terms of people trying to to do something that you know can harm your business or or go on to ha- harm your the, the, those people who consume your food.
2: I was gonna just picking up on that as well, Chris. Um, you know, you mentioned just a minute ago that wherever you look you're going to find food fraud um are are there certain commodities that are giving you sort of um that 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 we should be um particularly wary of in the current climate um you know i'm thinking maybe you know and this is a guess and you know you and Um, nick are the experts but uh, you know fish i presume at the moment would potentially be an area of concern but uh, are, are there commodities or ingredients that you're particularly concerned about
1: yeah i mean there there are always different ingredients commodities that that will have a higher risk than others david um so, some of them never change. I mean, fish is a great example. And, uh, you know, myself and others, we now call it the, the 11 sins of seafood. <laughs> there, there are 11 different ways that, that, that people can cheat in, in seafood supply chains. They're, they're very, very complicated. Now, what we have in terms of seafood is some additional risks. And the additional risks with seafood... Uh, lies with, with the issues in terms of, of, of the Ukraine war, you know, because one of the biggest uh, 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 catchers of fish in the world is Russia. You know, they've got the huge uh, uh, ships and lots of people are saying now, well, you know, we, we will not buy Russian fish. <laughs> and, you know, I can guarantee you there's plenty of people who are buying Russian fish at the minute. It just maybe it will end up labeled with Norwegian or or something else like that. And again, you know, uh, I, I did a piece of work probably about 10 months ago and it was partly for, for actually the Scottish government who wanted to understand the vulnerabilities in terms of resilience uh, due to the, the, the Russian-Ukraine war. I've done it uh, along with a couple of, of different companies. Uh, I'm, I'm actually doing it now with another country. I can't even men- mention the country because they'll lock me away and, and, and throw away the key. But in terms of Ukraine, I mean, there's a statistic that I've quoted quite frequently, a population of 44 million people who produced enough food to feed 600 million people. And suddenly you've got a massive disruption to that, that, those m- supply chains. And that's particularly around things like uh, cereals, wheat in particular, oils, particularly sunflower oil. So you've got massive issues with cereals and oils because of Ukraine. And again, what I have picked up and animated—it it, it is frightening stuff, is that in some parts of the world now that the oils are so badly adulterated, even taking off the lid of the bottle and sniffing it is making people ill. <laughs> You know, so that those are the sort of things that happen, you know, because of these big disruptions.
0: And just, I think seafoods and fish is a useful example of where what might seem on the surface like a benign crime, for example, swapping one fish species for another, can actually have serious public health implications because. Uh, people have allergic reactions to different fish species if for example your chip shop has substituted um, a catfish or pangasius or something for cod or haddock there have been examples in the past where people have had severe allergic reactions to those so it you know what might seem on the surface okay it's a bit of fraud but you know we've still got our fish and chips at the end of the night it's not quite as simple as that is it
1: no it's not and and you know for for those eleven sins that I talked about, a lot of them have major impacts in terms of of, of safety of consumers. The uh, allergenicity is really massive because often you know, people think you're you're if you have an allergy, it's to all fish. Well, it's not. It's it's generally very species specific. The other thing is in terms of, of big risks around uh, the, the fraud in fish is trying to recycle fish that has been deemed unfit for human consumption, generally because it's it, it, it has gone off. Now, so you've got all sorts of risks about microbiological contamination, but there's another big risk there is particularly some species of fish. As it starts to age, you get spontaneous production of histamine, And and again, there's a lot of people have a very bad reaction to histamine. And I have picked up many, many more people saying that I've had problems with with histamine allergens over the last 12 months than ever before. And in the back of my mind, I just think it's probably to do with fraud and fish.
0: That's really interesting, isn't it? Chris, you spoke at the start about how data you're you know you're really interested in data and, and have been throughout your career and I know David you're keen to ask Chris about an eco labeling project that he's been involved with
2: yeah yeah it's something that we've been following very closely chris is the the rollout of different eco labeling schemes you know some looking at just carbon some wrapping in more environmental metrics some even go going further um, into sort of Capturing animal welfare and fair pay into some of these labels, and you're you're, I believe, involved um, in advising the Foundation Earth uh, labelling scheme. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to find out, you know, how that's going, uh, and um, you know how powerful you feel these labels can be, both to nudge us consumers. Towards more sustainable purchases, but perhaps more importantly, how they can encourage greener supply chains.
1: So, I mean, I, I'm I'm really pleased to be you know have a role in Foundation Earth, which actually was the the brainchild of a very good friend of mine, Dennis Lynn, and, and Dennis died a couple of, of years ago tragically. But you know, f- for all of those involved in Foundation Earth at the time, that was just even more resolved to keep <laughs> keep keep working as hard as we possibly could o- on the mission o- of the foundation. So yes, there there are quite a lot of different schemes about front of pack labelling in terms of nutrition, sustainability, animal welfare, uh, the the ethics, and I think when we looked at this really quite seriously, is that with a myriad of different schemes, we were worried, quite frankly, that it was a wonderful opportunity to do the greenwashing that you two guys write about so frequently. And I mean, I really do like your your articles about it. And the greenwashing opportunities are there for what metrics are you going to incorporate into your, your, your calculations, where does the data come from? You know, is it really primary data from the supply chains that you're working in? Or is it just data that you're picking off the internet or some scientific publication? And, you know, when we've looked at this really hard, I have to tell you, most of the current schemes that are out there are taking quite an easy road. And the easy road is, you know, let's not collect too much data. Let's uh, avoid the really difficult data sets and let's come up with something that you know we, we can put on the front of pack label and food businesses will adopt because it's not causing them too many problems and and the, and the, then again you know on their on their 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 sustainability reports they can say that they're they're moving forward. So, it's been a—I I would describe it as a pretty difficult journey, you know. Uh, over the over the years, of Foundation Earth, we have had multiple engagements with multiple companies, listening to them, and also thinking, you know, on a much broader horizon about sustainability. You know, it's not just about sustainability of food. <laughs> there's there's so many different services and products that that, that we look at, and. Our our main conclusion was that the big driver for sustainability on the planet is Europe, really is. And and there are so many big initiatives in Europe, and and one of them is around what's called PETH. I'm not sure if you're familiar with PETH, but it's Product and Environmental Scoring. And there's been a lot of work in Europe in terms of what should you measure, what parameters should you measure. And and that is really becoming quite standardized now for lots of products and services. And our conclusion was, how could we possibly move away from PEF if we're trying to get people to compare the label that's on your, your vacuum cleaner or your washing machine with a label that's on your food so that's really where we are now. And, and we have come up with some really good algorithms around PEF now. And we are now getting more and more buy-in from some of those companies that we talked about only one or two years ago that said, if you go for a PEF approach, we don't want to, to play in, in, with you. So I think things are pretty positive around what Foundation Earth is doing. And again, it's about harmonisation. Let's not have five different approaches to front-of-pack labelling. Let's have one. And I would always draw the conclusion, if you go into a supermarket now and look at the front-of-pack labelling about nutrition which label can you really trust? You know, there there are so many of them. I, I'll tell you, I, I mean, there, there are some that I absolutely do trust because I know where their data comes from, and there's some I would just take, you know, excuse the, the pun, but just with a pinch of salt.
2: Yeah, and I think that's what... Um great points and uh, you know it's those are some of the key themes that nick and i have been wrestling with in in a report we've got out next month um that looks in part at eco labels chris and this you know do you go for the primary data how far do you go on the primary data do you use some of the secondary data do you use all secondary data and then the harmonization um is really really critical is is that where is that where government you know are are we asking too much for government to step in there or do you feel it's something that industry you know and you're thinking back to your experience on on food fraud and how industry got together and got to grips with it do you think it's something that industry can lead on a a harmonized eco-label
1: my strongest recommendation to industry is Absolutely, you should lead because if you don't, government will impose something eventually that you will absolutely hate and detest. And, you know, in in several European countries now, it looks like there will be governmental schemes will be mandated. Uh, Holland, I think, is probably going to be the first and, you know what, the Dutch are really working towards PEF, not surprisingly, you know, because they're, they're, they're very big in, in, into PEF as well. So if you sit back and wait for somebody else to do something, Craigie, you, you, might, you might get something that you really didn't want to have to face into.
0: Chris, we've had a fascinating trawl through food fraud and eco-labels. Um, and, you, you know, you've, you've, you've got such a, a breadth of experience but what's what's coming up on the horizon for you? What's next? What will you be looking at over the next sort of six to twelve months in particular? Yeah,
1: actually, what I'm working a lot on now is what I would call food systems resilience, Nick, and that is, you know, I mean, it has become you know quite in vogue over the last twelve months because of of Ukraine and, and Russia, and, and suddenly people finding out my, my supply chain doesn't work anymore, I can't get X, I can't get Y. And what we are doing, I mean, I'm working with a group of people, is looking at how do you build a much more resilient food system to shocks? And those shocks are, you know, it could be political, it could be war, but more than anything else, it will be climate back to climate again. And it's really getting ourselves ready for a position to say, supply chains are going to fail. And, and how do we mitigate against those failures going forward? Actually, most of my work is now in Southeast Asia. I, I spend quite a lot of time out in, 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 in the, what's called the ASEAN region because they're massive food producers. You know, Probably 15 to 20% of all the food we eat in the world comes from that region. It's pretty important. And that region is also listed as a top one of the top 10 regions in the world which is currently and going to be impacted by climate change. And, you know, it's not just people in that region will be short of food. It will impact the whole world itself. So that's kind of what my focus is, I, I think probably for as long as I can keep working now that's, that that'll be it
0: that's really interesting and we cover a we cover a wide range of subjects in these podcasts um but it feels like one thread that runs through them all is this link between food and climate and you just cannot get away with it whether it's fraud safety productivity um you know uh labeling it's if, if you haven't grasped the nettle that food and climate, uh, you know, is 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 where you know the 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 intersection of these key issues. Then um, then I don't think you're going to because it's uh, it's absolutely critical. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time for sharing your knowledge and expertise. It's been fascinating, and we wish you all the best in your future endeavours.
1: Yeah, it's been really great talking to you both, Nick and David, and uh, yeah. Let's have another conversation in six months about food systems resilience, okay?
0: (laughs) A huge thank you to our guest, Chris Elliott, and thank you to Coca-Cola Europe-Pacific Partners for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefitprint.com. Thanks for listening.